Hello everyone, hope you are doing well. Uh, today we are going to go through a, a pretty common question when it comes to the Bible uh, proper, I guess you could call it, is how did the Bible come together? Uh, if you remember from the last episode, um, we'll be referring to the word canon, um, which means the collection of books that are that have shown to have authority. And we're going to kind of show how that came about. Uh, and so we'll start with the Old Testament. Uh, the ancient Old Testament uh, is different than what we have now in the Old Testament. In the Jewish Testament, it was different, not in content, but in order. And so the number of Jewish Torah books, which is the formal name for it, uh, was 24 total books, uh, or 22 if Judges and Ruth and Jeremiah and Lamentations are combined. Um, and that's opposed to our 39. Now, what ends up happening is they combine some books that we don't. Uh, these are affectionately called the Tanakh, uh, and that's because uh, it's three different sections. Uh, the first one is Torah. That's the Ta of Tanakh, uh, and that's the law. They have the same five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, then the next section for them is Nevi'im, which is the Na in the Tanakh, uh, which that's the prophets. Uh, that's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Uh, notice that they have one book for Samuel, where we have two, and they have one book for Kings, where we have two, and they have one book for all the minor prophets, all twelve of them. That's why it's called the Twelve. Um, the final section is called Ketuvim, that's the K in the Tanakh, at the end, and that means writings. That's Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah is one book, and Chronicles is also one book. And so that's their old division. And so for the Old Testament, the way that they tested if something was canonical, if something was from God, um, is they had several tests. Uh, the first one is that often a, a book of the Old Testament was written by a prophet. And what we mean by prophet is God gives the tests, there's two main tests, for a prophet, and he gives it in the very first books of the Bible. Uh, the first five books of the Bible were given uh, by Moses, and they are the first writings of the Bible. They all came together. And so Deuteronomy 18, 21 to 22, tells us the prophets need to be 100% right 100% of the time. In other words, if there is a prophet that has one false prophecy, that's it. It's, it's no longer a prophet on the, the standard that God has given. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3 is the other standard the other test, and it says God's prophets will call the people only to God. There should be no contradiction with other older revelation. Isaiah 8.20 agrees with this. And basically, this revelation is above all others. And so the prophet, 100% right, 100% of the time, and points to God. Um, another thing besides a prophet is the writer was confirmed by an act of God. And this often happened by a miracle, um, a short-term prophecy that was fulfilled, or a long-term prophecy that was fulfilled. Uh, sometimes it was automatically accepted by from the author to the people. Sometimes it was very quick. Um, Exodus 24, 3 through 7, and Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22 uh, shows that the books that Moses was writing as he finished them were accepted as from God. 
Um, and the other thing is, and remember, all of these have to be together. The books claim to be from God, and it's often a unique internal uh, characteristic that it is inspired or authoritative. And so it's all these um, or some combination of them showing that these books were from God. So there were a couple of books, a handful, that were doubted but eventually accepted. Esther is one because it has no overt mention of God. Proverbs, which some people see as a few of them seem to be self-contradicting. Um, Song of Solomon has some sensuality and people just weren't too sure about that. In the beginning, Ecclesiastes seems to give a skeptical view of life without God, and Ezekiel has a vision of the temple that seemed to contradict the Mosaic law. So we have some interesting knowns in this realm, some things that are known. For example, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were immediately accepted as God's word, and we see this in history. Moses was a proven messenger of God. Joshua 24, 26 through 27 shows us that the book of Joshua was almost immediately accepted after it was written. It shows us that the Old Testament was not orally transmitted. Instead, it was written immediately for some of these books. 1 Samuel 10.25 says that what Samuel said was written and stored. And Daniel 9.2-11 says that Daniel had a copy of Moses and the prophets, and he specifically mentions Jeremiah, which was about 70 years before Daniel. Sometimes prophets will mention each other. They were often accepted as they were written. Old Testament and Jewish traditions say that Ezra was the one that finalized or brought together the Old Testament for Israel and for us. This seems like a plausible option. Uh, <clears throat> we also have a confirmation of a closed Old Testament canon. The books in the Old Testament were reaffirmed in the New Testament. By the time of Jesus and his disciples, the Old Testament was completed. There's no mention of any issues by Jesus. In fact, we see that it is constantly affirmed by the New Testament. The Jewish community considered the Old Testament as closed. Josephus claims this was done by the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes. He lived from 463 to 423, I'm sorry, 465 to 423 BC. And that can be seen in Against Apion, uh, 138 through 42. The apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees 15.9, mentions comforting with the law and prophets. And that was a normal phrase which signified the Old Testament in that time. Sirach's prologue mentions the three sections of the Jewish canon that we talked about above. Now, the New Testament points to the Old Testament as being the Word of God, and it does that by saying it is written, in quotes, showing the Old Testament's authority and canonicity. It's actually, the Old Testament is quoted over 300 times in the New Testament. Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, mentions that Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, was written through the Holy Spirit. Also, Portions of the New Testament verify the Old Testament history, like Sodom and Gomorrah in 2 Peter 2.6 and Jude verse 7, and the flood, Hebrews 11.7 and 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5. 
Another confirmation was Jesus. Jesus confirmed the Old Testament canon in several ways. Uh, he affirmed the whole of it. Uh, Jesus affirmed from Abel to Zechariah, and this showed basically from Genesis to Chronicles, which was the Jewish ordering of the Old Testament books. And we see this in Matthew 23, 35 and Luke eleven fifty one. Uh, he, Jesus, points to historical figures and events uh, found within its pages. Adam and Eve, as well as creation in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Isaiah as a prophet, Matthew 13, 14 to 15. Daniel as a prophet, Matthew 24, 15, etc. Uh, John W. Wenman uh, says it well, and this is in Christ and the Bible. And here's the quote. We have references by Christ to Abel, Luke eleven fifty one, 51, Noah, Matthew 24, 37 to 39, and Luke 17, 26 to 27, to Abraham, John 8, 56, the institution of circumcision, John 7, 22, which cross-references to Genesis 17, 10 to 12, and Leviticus 12, 3, as well as to Sodom and Gomorrah, Matthew 10, 15, 11, uh, Matthew 11, 23 to 24, Luke 10, 12, to Lot, Luke 17, 28 to 32, Isaac and Jacob, Matthew 11, 8, 8, 11, sorry, a lot of references here, Luke 13 to 20 yes. and 25, the manna that they had in the desert, John 6, 31, 49 and 58, the wilderness serpent, John 3, 14, David, David eating the shoe bread or the holy bread, uh, Matthew 12, 3 and 4, Matthew 2, 25 and 6, 26, Luke 6, 3 and 4, as well as a psalm writer, Matthew 2, 22, 43, Mark 12, 36, Luke 20, verse 42. Jesus refers to Solomon, Matthew 6, 29, 12, 42, and Luke 11, 31, Elijah, referred to in Luke 4, 25 and 26, Elisha, Luke 4, 27, Jonah, Matthew 12, 39 through 41, and Luke 11, 29 through 30 and 32. And these, there are repeated references to Moses as the giver of the law. And we see that in Matthew 8, 4, 9, 8, Mark 1, 44, etc. The sufferings of the prophets are mentioned frequently. Uh, he sets the stamp of approval on passages in Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew 19, 4 through 5, and he treated it all equally as history. Another thing that Jesus did was Jesus used it as an authoritative thing, as, a, as word of God. And we see this in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Matthew 12, 1 through 8, Matthew 19, 3 through 9, Mark 12.36, Luke 4, etc. He cited whole divisions of it. Uh, he called it, uh, we see that in Luke 24.44, and he sometimes referred to it as the law and the prophets, which again was a common way to just mention it. We see this in Matthew 7.12 and Romans 3.21. And basically, all of the Old Testament is cited in the New Testament. And, and here we can give a bunch of examples. And remember, we just need one reference. We need one reference to point back to show that Jesus approved of the book because Jesus is our standard. Um, so Genesis, he mentions it in Matthew 19, 4 through 5, Exodus, John 6, 31, the book of Leviticus in Matthew 
8.4, Numbers, John 3.14, Deuteronomy, Matthew 4.4, Joshua, Hebrews 13.5, Judges, Hebrews 11.32, Ruth, Matthew 1.5, First and Second Samuel, Matthew 12.3 and 4, Second, first and Second Kings, Luke four twenty five, First and Second Chronicles, and this one is an illusion. Um, it's it, he's kind of pointing to it in Matthew twenty three thirty five, Ezra Nehemiah. Remember that was one book, John six thirty one. Also, the book of Esther um, was taken into the culture. The Feast of Purim, which began in Esther, was accepted in Jewish culture. Job was quoted in James five eleven. Psalm in Matthew twenty one twenty four and chapter twenty two verse forty four, Proverbs in Luke fourteen verses eight to ten, Ecclesiastes was alluded to. Um, <laughs> Ecclesiastes was alluded to in Galatians six seven, the Song of Solomon was alluded to in John four ten through eleven and verse fourteen, Isaiah in Luke four eighteen to nineteen, Jeremiah in Hebrews eight eight through twelve. Lamentations in Matthew twenty seven thirty, Ezekiel in John three ten, and Daniel in Matthew twenty four fifteen, and the twelve were referred to in Matthew twenty six thirty one. So, <clears throat> was there a council at Jamnia that decided the Old Testament in ninety A D? It is a common theory that says that this occurred, but there are actually issues with the theory. First, a council had no binding authority over anyone. So even if they had done this, it would make no inkling of effect. Second, they only discussed Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon in this council. And even the discussions were really about how to interpret them, not necessarily whether they were canon or not. Third, the Old Testament books were all treated in canonical um, sorry, treated as canonical. The list didn't differ from Josephus or Jesus. The theory of the council is conjecture at best, a lie, and an attempt to deceive at worst. All right, now let's do an overview of the New Testament canon. Jesus, the God-man, existed and came to dwell among mankind. He claimed to speak from God and on behalf of God, and that's based in part on Deuteronomy 18.17-19, also on Matthew 28.19. Jesus promised through the Holy Spirit to provide documentation for the new covenant and that he would send them out as witnesses in John 14.26, also 1 Corinthians 2.13. The New Testament is composed of 27 books and eight to nine authors. Uh, this is important <clears throat> because most events in ancient history are confirmed or believed to be true with one or two authors. So we have the four apostles of Jesus, Matthew, who wrote Matthew, John, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. We have the apostle Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter are the ones that he wrote, and Paul, which was Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Um, we have two stepbrothers of Jesus, and this is stepbrother because they had the same mother, but not the same father. And this would be James, um, who was also an apostle, and we see that in Acts 15 and Galatians 1.19, but he wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. 
we also see associates of the apostles, so like a next generation type thing. Um, Mark, who was an associate of Peter, and we can see this in, in the church father of Justin Martyr, and he possibly wrote Mark and he possibly wrote First Peter on behalf of Peter. Um, we also have Luke, who was an associate of Paul, and he wrote Luke and Acts. And then we have Hebrews, which Hebrews is debated on who wrote it. Um, we think at the very least it was someone associated to the apostles because they mentioned people that the apostles would know, Hebrews 2.3 and 13.23. Um, personally, I think it was Paul, but that's up to debate. Now, within these books, there were a handful that were disputed in the churches. Um, Hebrews, because there was an uncertain author. James, uh, a seeming contradiction with Paul. Uh, Jude, he refers to the, the non-canonical book of Enoch. Second Peter, again, uncertain author. And second and third John seem like personal letters. And Revelation was doubted because how people used it. Now, they were still accepted and very, very early on. And same with the Old Testament ones. The ones that were questioned, they were accepted. Um, the other books were never disputed. They were accepted pretty much with no fight. Now, all of these authors, every single one of them in the New Testament, claims to be an eyewitness of the events. See that in Luke 1, 1 through 4, John 19, 35, and 21, 24, Acts 2, 32, 4, 19 to 20, as well as 10, 39 to 40, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, Galatians 1, 11 through 12, Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, 1 Peter 5, 1, 2 Peter 1, 16, and 1 John 1, 1. And whenever we have these long string of references, it's because it's important. Um, if anybody wants to check us, look up the verses. Rewind a little bit, check them out. Uh, the New Testament was accepted pretty much immediately and organically by the early church. It was early enough to know the apostles or the authors and verify their claims. And this was circulated to the other churches. So we said that the New Testament books were accepted. W what exactly does that mean? Well, <clears throat> first of all, it was by universal agreement. Remember, the church was being persecuted, and so they needed a canon to rely on, to die for. There were three forms of this. They would question, were these books internally consistent? Did these books agree with the other accepted books of the Bible? And did the church at large agree with their inspiration? Daniel 9, 2 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. Now, another thing they would ask was, was it written by an apostle of Jesus or a close associate of an apostle? 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11, Ephesians 2, 20. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and Revelation 21, 14. So with this, they were looking for either eyewitness testimony or very close to it. So people from between 45 to 100 AD, these were the Christ followers historically. Also, they were asking when the book was written. It had to be written within the lifetimes of these eyewitnesses between 40 to 90 AD. Um, Peter affirmed Paul's writings as scripture, as well as his own, in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 2, and verses 15 to 16. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, elders are worthy of double honor, and then Paul quotes two passages, Deuteronomy 25, 4, and then Luke 10, 7. So Luke is scripture. It's quoted word for word. <clears throat> 
um, Colossians 4.16 was to be read to the church and by other churches. In 1 Thessalonians 5.27, there is a command to read it. And 2 Corinthians 10.9 speaks of how well-known Paul's letters were. One other question they asked was, did these books contradict the Old Testament? The Old Testament was already established by Jesus' time, and so the church knew they already had word from God. Now, further evidence to expand on the above is the acceptance of these writings by the church fathers. And, and when we say that, we mean very, very early uh, people within the church. Um, and... We have many of these writings from the Church Father, and they're early, there's multiple of them, and here are just some, just, just a small fraction of them. Um, Pseudo-Barnabas, which was written somewhere in the vicinity of 7 to 130 AD, uh, he cites uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Ephesians, 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, First and Second Peter. Um, Ignatius, which he lived around 110 AD, uh, Matthew, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, James, 1 and 2 Peter. Um, one more, and there are others, like you can look into uh, Clement of Rome, he lived 95 to 97, Polycarp, he lived 110 to 150 AD, Marcion, 140, but Arrhenius lived 130 to 202 AD, and, and this one in specific is quoted from Against Heresies, it's what, the, what it was called, and he mentions Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd John, Jude and Revelation. Uh, to repeat, these are a handful, and they are very, very early. The Bible was probably done being written by 90 AD, and yet by 130 to 100 to 202 AD, we have all the New Testament cited as Scripture, except for Third John, and Philemon. John the Apostle's disciple was Polycarp, and his disciple was Irenaeus, who said in his writings that there are only four Gospels, and with these two men that had direct information from the Apostle John. We have 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament as authentic. We also have what is called a Meritorian Fragment, and this is dated 175 AD, so 130, 140 years from Jesus, that gives us a pretty up-to-date listing to the New Testament canon, including the Shepherd of Hermas. And that was not in, that was not to be included because it was written in our time, is what the, the fragment mentions. And it's not accepted because the canon was already closed. If we let more time pass, we have several authors cite portions from all or most of the books of the New Testament, like Tertullian from 150 to 220 AD, Origen from 185 to 254 AD, Cyprian from 258 AD, Cyril of Jerusalem, <laughs> Jerusalem from 315 to 386 AD, Athanasius, he adds, let no one add, let no one take away from 367 AD, and Jerome from 340 to 420 AD, and Hippo from 393 AD, and Carthage 397 AD, and Augustine 400 AD. All of the New Testament books were accepted by the church as a whole by 393 AD. They recognized as a whole the reality of the New Testament canon. 
Most skeptics <laughs> will highlight this 367 AD date, but if we look deeper into the issue, the canon was accepted very early on with no chance of legends or fake news. This gives us confidence in the truth of scripture. God is faithful in preserving his word. Now, <clears throat> there's an interesting theory that was brought together by Dr. Kellum. He's a, he was a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. The basic theory tries to make sense of what we have found in some archaeological finds. Remember, many times we find pieces or fragments of the New Testament from the ancient times. We know that in an early stage, many of the books were grouped together. Cullum's theory with the evidence we have is that this started out from the very beginning of Christianity. We can see four main codices, and those are two-sided page book. Pauline letters, Romans through Hebrews, the Gospels, Matthew through John, Acts with the general epistles, and Revelation. In each of these, we see incredible uniformity in content, order, and titles. So let's go through a handful of these. The Pauline letters. We know that Paul's letters circulated as a unit on a codex, in a book, if you want to call it that. How did the collection originate? Now, it's, it's very hard to believe that these letters all came together on their own. And Paul died mid to late 60s AD. Now, it's very likely that by the production of Second Peter, there was already a collection of letters put together because the book makes references to Paul's writings being inspired by God. And we saw that in 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Now, 2 Peter was written mid-60s, and many early church fathers already refer to Paul's writings in the early 90s. Now, evidence also shows that there were local, quote-unquote, collections, or that the full amount of this codex, or book, was in many places. There had to have been a collection of these letters that were brought together for the purposes of Scripture. Now, the most probable theory, again, aligning to Kellum's theory, is Paul himself, that in ancient times, a person that would write a letter often would write a copy for himself. Uh, remember, now we have the, the luxury of emails and we have the luxury of, of mail, but it wasn't like that in the past. If somebody wanted a copy of what they wrote, they had to write it themselves. Um, so, Paul himself would have had a set of his own letters. And this may be what he referred to in 2 Timothy 4.13. And so, these would include Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. Now, this is 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament as one collection known to be inspired scripture of God. Okay, next let's look at the fourfold Gospels the, and then the rest of the New Testament. Not too long after Jesus' ministry, the Synoptic Gospels were written. That includes Matthew, Mark, and Luke with Acts. Most probably, <clears throat> all were written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They circulated independent of one another for multiple years and were typically not disputed as scripture. Many early church fathers said that only four were inspired. This implies an authority of the transmitters. We have some early church fathers referring to the Gospels as a whole. By the end of the second century, the fourfold Gospel Codex was common. 
It's even called the gospel by Irenaeus and others. This means that there must have been a time before this when this codex was not so popular. This is shown in archaeology. When we find one of the four gospels bound in a codex, it's always, up to now, been with another canonical gospel. There's no evidence of there being a non-canonical book bound together with a canonical book. For example, you would never, no one's ever found Matthew bound together with the book of Thomas, a non-canonical book. Mid-second century is basically the latest the canon for the Gospels could have been created. The earliest would be when the last Gospel was composed, which was the Gospel of John in the 80s or 90s. When the Fourfold Gospel Codex was created, it's very likely that the Third Codex was created simply because Luke and Acts were separated. The Third Codex contained Acts, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude. This is again shown throughout archaeology. It's very possible that the person that organized these books was the same person. It's argued by Dr. Kellum that John the Disciple of Jesus himself organized the canon for the Second and Third Codex, and this would place the canon of most of Scripture before 98 AD. That's pretty fascinating. Now, why most of Scripture and why not all of it? Well, to those people that have been following along in their Bibles, we still have the book of Revelation to place. This is the reason that if the canon was organized by John, it needed to be before 98 AD. Revelation is typically found on its own codex with other different books because of its late composition. This would make sense that Paul compiled these books because if Revelation was already created when this canon was compiled, why wouldn't he include it in the codex, in the third or the second one? As the title says, it's an interesting theory. But we mentioned that this is Dr. Kellum's theory and we're kind of putting it forth it just sounded really interesting. And this would put the complete canon of Scripture as put together before 100 AD. Now, on a side note, um, there are abbreviations on all the canon manuscripts that consist of the first and last letter of the Greek word for God, Jesus or Spirit, with a line above the letters. So no one has accounted for these, but this theory says that the original editor made these markings to distinguish them from other writings, in essence, making a canon. Now, this difference is brought by uh, D. Trobeshek, and this is yet another evidence for a very early canon. And finally, the forerunner of the Christian faith was the Old Testament, which were the Old Testament Old Covenant manuscripts. Every Jew that would convert to Christianity would be expecting new covenant documents to kind of seal the deal that this was expected in the New Testament. A new, uh, a new Messiah was coming and he would bring a new covenant and with new covenant comes new paper, new information. Now, couldn't this just be a legend? Couldn't it all just have been made up? Now, there's not enough time for legends. Even with late dates given by skeptics, which is 70 to 100 AD, early dates for the New Testament are 40 to 95 AD. Myths are difficult to gain ground when the eyewitnesses are still around. To make matters worse for this thought, there are historical locations, figures, and more, and all of it has to be proven correct as we continue through archaeology. Now, is there a possibility that this was all just colluded? Did they just write it together? No scholar really believes this. There are too many issues with it, like 
different unique material in each book, which does not make sense if they were created together. Yet at the same time, there's a relationship. Some stories are shared in that they have similar details in a general storyline. So just to clarify, colluded means that they all kind of got together and were like, hey, let's just kind of write this down so we're all, you know, we're all duping everyone together kind of thing. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> yes, sorry. No, that's fine. I, I, I didn't know what the word meant, so I was curious. <laughs> All right, so, <clears throat> well, maybe the Gospels just evolved. This claim, saying that, is um, saying that the earliest account of Jesus is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. The claim is that the Gospels came along, they added more miracles, and made it more fantastic from, let's say, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and then John. The formal name for this is the development theory. There are quite a few issues with this approach, though, and here's a few of them. If this were true, we should see development all around, not just the resurrection, but we don't see this. If, again, if it were true, it assumes that 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 is a gospel and that these appearances were only visions, but we see eyewitnesses and group appearances. It ignores the immediate context of the passage where Paul says that Jesus was resurrected in verse 4, 12, 13, 20, and 21, and 32. Resurrection is a physical resurrection. Um, this passage is not a resurrection account, which the theory assumes. Instead, this is basically refuting a position that there would be no resurrection from the dead. Its intent was not to give a full-blown explanation. The word for appearing in Greek is often used for a physical appearance. This can be confirmed with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There is a possibility that Mark's passion narrative, Mark 14 through chapter 16, verse 8, was written in the 40s AD, which would be before 1 Corinthians. To make matters worse, if one looks just at the passage, Paul lists seven miracles. Jesus rose, appeared to six different groups, so it's full of miracles. Also, each account has different information, which means there was no grand legendary expansion. This theory only really works when you pick the evidence that aligns to the theory and ignore everything else. When we look at the whole, it falls apart. For example, John wrote largely things that are not in the other Gospels at all. <clears throat> 